Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to Life with GDPR, a podcast where I work in conjunction with Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance in London, and a well-known data privacy, data protection expert. However, first, as you know, the Compliance Podcast Network is always expanding, and I'm looking for new podcasts. Have you wanted to do a podcast but didn't know how? Take a listen to our sponsor this week, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. Life with GDPR is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance in London, for another episode of Life with GDPR. Jonathan, uh, first of all, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. My pleasure, Tom. So, Jonathan, today I'd like to visit about the recently released um, monetary penalty notice issued by the ICO involving Bounty UK Limited. Now, this is not a bounty the ship. This is not uh, Fletcher Christensen with Mutiny on the Bounty, but it's another company called Bounty. So I found uh, really a lot, uh, and and I have to emphasize A-L-O-T, lot, of uh, juicy information in here. So perhaps we could just jump right into it, and could you detail for us the background facts? Yes, I will, yeah. And um, I think as the great American social commentator Yogi Berra said, This is like deja vu all over again, in that what happened here is very similar to a case that we talked about, I guess, in the autumn slash fall of last year called the Emma's Diary case. And it all um, comes out of the Facebook slash Cambridge Analytica investigation. And the UK Data Protection Regulator, the ICO, has had a team of about 60 people work on that investigation. So, uh, regular listeners will recall that we talked uh, previously about this uh, operation called Emma's Diary that had collected data on uh, mums and expectant mothers and had fallen foul of the ICO in doing that and had been fined £140,000. And the case against Bounty is somewhat similar, with the fine in this case being £400,000. That's important to remember that that's four-fifths of the then maximum. So under uh, GDPR, obviously, fines are substantially higher. But under the old law, they were limited to uh, £500,000. And this is a case under the old law that's taken some time to investigate. So what happened here is Bounty is, like Emma's Diary, a a sort of pregnancy and parenting club. And what happens is that either your midwife before you go into hospital to have your baby or sometimes a midwife on a ward might walk up to a um, a, a mum who's recently given birth and give them a box of stuff or give them a postcard that they can take into a pharmacist to get a box of 
samples of baby products. And of course, um, most people knew at the time that their personal data was being collected. It was being processed for this membership uh, registration, which uh, you can tell how old my daughters were. It was a postcard in my day. It's now uh, also a website and a mobile app. And you can claim these uh, white boxes with, uh, with stuff in. And I think most people knew that the corollary of that is that their data would be shared with the companies who provided the talcum powder, et cetera, that was in the box. What people probably didn't realize is that Bounty was sharing data with more people. And I think they didn't realize the extent of that data sharing. So between June 2017 and April 2018, the ICO found that Bounty shared uh, just under 34 and a half million records with credit reference agencies, with marketing agencies, and that included Axiom, Equifax, uh, Indicia, and Sky. Um, 39 organizations had uh, got access to this bounty pot, if you like. And the information was obviously uh, concerned vulnerable people, new mothers, mothers-to-be, very young children, you know, some only hours old, and it included birth date and sex of the child. And the ICO naturally were unhappy about this. Uh, again, we said before when we looked at Emma's diary and some of the other cases that a central tenant of GDPR is transparency. It can be okay to get people's data, to share it, even to sell it, but you've got to be upfront with people about what you're doing. And here the ICO said that they that Bounty weren't open or transparent. They breached principle one of the six GDPR principles that we've talked about before. If people gave consent, then that consent wasn't valid because they hadn't been informed about what was happening with their data. And you'll remember that we said before that consent to be valid has to be full, informed, freely given. And so the ICO said even if people had consented, that consent was in, invalid. And they said that um, data sharing was an integral part of Bounty's model and that a, as a result, that was all likely motivated by financial gain. And so um, the uh, ICO naturally felt duty bound to take actions. It said that its privacy policies, and I'm paraphrasing, weren't desperately bad. Um, they did list uh, um, organizations that they might share information with, but none of the four largest recipients were listed. And none of the PAC claim cards and offline registration methods, so the postcards that I talked about before, had an opt-in for marketing purposes. It seems as if that material just hadn't been uh, updated. So I think it's a uh, significant uh, case. I think, again, like all of these that we look at now, the fine would likely be significantly higher in a post-GDPR world. And this case, as I say, I take it as a pair. 
with the Emma's diary case just tells us that we need to make sure that we're completely transparent with people when we're obtaining their data and that we're able to tell them what's going to happen and who we're going to share their data with. Jonathan, if I could maybe go in a little bit different direction, it strikes me that if your business model is data, um, that that under GDPR and the UK uh, law is uh, a significantly higher risk. It does not mean that you cannot have your business model as data. It simply means that if your risk is high of a legal or regulatory uh, enforcement action, your risk management strategy must be equally high. So for companies that have routinely done this type of, uh, provided this type of service or collected uh, not simply this type of data, but really any uh, personally identifiable data, they are the companies that really need to have the most robust uh, GDPR compliant or UK compliant data protection, data privacy policies. Is is that part of the discussion in the data privacy, um, data protection community that uh, you are, are in in both uh, the EU and the UK? I, I think you're right, Tom. I mean, I think it's almost like the analogy, isn't it, that um, if I bill myself as a concert pianist and book Carnegie Hall, you don't expect me to turn up and play chopsticks. I think if you're a data processing business or a data broking business, it's right, isn't it, that you should be held to a higher standard. If you say your, you know, your shtick is the professional handling of data, then that's got to go right through the business in terms of your processes, your procedures, the consents that you obtain, the other legitimate uh, ways you use of, of, of obtaining data. And transparency has got to be key. It's no longer possible for any individual to work out what a company is doing with their data. That company has to be clear to people about what's going to happen with it and how they're going to extract value from it. Is the um, the attendant risk of companies in this sort of business, are they really, uh, do they understand their risk and are they engaging true data privacy, data protection experts uh, to put together an appropriate level of risk management strategy, in your opinion? I think as far as data brokers are concerned, then some are um, taking proper advice, some aren't from my experience. But the other reason that it's possibly this case is of wider application is that, you know, we know that a lot of people buy these lists as well. The ICO investigation has found 39 organizations that Bounty shared personal data with. But some of those, we know, are in the business of reselling that data. So it could be that the Bounty data is already in the hands of, I don't know, 4,000, 5,000, 10,000 corporations. So if you're in a corporation and you're buying in marketing lists, uh, particularly in the sort of uh, recent mums, um, mums-to-be, uh, young children arenas, then you're going to have to do the very best due diligence to make sure that the list that you're buying in isn't impurified by data that's been unlawfully obtained from Bounty or Emma's Diary or, or whomever. 
so the obligation, I think, to follow through this um, these type of incidents goes right down to a user level. It's not just the person who procured the data originally. We all have to be clear that we're not benefiting from that uh, unlawful obtaining of data in the first place. You know, that's a, that's a great point to, to end on, Jonathan, that uh, moving down to the uh, fourth, fifth, sixth, and perhaps even seventh tier uh, user level uh, does um, provide a risk. And that um, if you are obtaining this data, you may have to start asking questions of the people that you've uh, purchased it or procured it from, how they obtained it. So uh, it's really, a, I think, a very prescient point. Yeah, absolutely. And and I guess one last thing we should say is that civil actions can't be ruled out. We've talked previously about the Morrison's case. It's just been announced that that's heading to our Supreme Court and class actions following the mishandling of data are very much uh, here and part of the UK regime now. So even if you're using data that someone else has obtained, you're not likely to uh, escape the attention of class action lawyers. Uh, Jonathan, this has been a fascinating exploration of the bounty enforcement action, uh, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. My pleasure, Tom. Thanks again. This conference will now be recorded. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again for another episode with Jonathan Armstrong, partner at Quartery Compliance. Jonathan, first of all, welcome back. Thanks very much, Tom. Jonathan, there was recently a blog post on the New York University uh, Compliance and Enforcement blog entitled GDPR, What Happened to One-Stop Shop Enforcement? And uh, I don't I don't want to suggest that the article was controversial, but it did seem to me to present some information that's significant for the data privacy, data protection practitioner who really is outside of the EU and uh, does not get this type of uh, commentary or information as often as someone like yourself who, who's really in the community um, does. So I was wondering if uh, you might be able to to really pick up on uh, the points made by uh, the author and what it really means for companies who find themselves either in the situation where they've had a breach or in the middle of an enforcement action. Yeah, happy to, Tom. Um, so probably best if I first outline what One Stop Shop is meant to do. So the idea is really that for investigations that affect data protection issues across the EU, one EU regulator will take the lead. So here, um, we're going to talk today, I guess, in the main about Google and Facebook. And what happened uh, there is, let's take Facebook first, for example. Facebook has its EU operations located in Dublin. And as a result, Facebook argues that its lead regulator is the uh, DPC in Ireland, and that as a result, investigations into Facebook, for, uh, uh, which are prompted by complaints to any data protection authority in the EU, should be uh, logged under this one-stop shop system 
and that Ireland should effectively have the opportunity to lead. Uh, what happens in practice is that there is a computer uh, system that runs out of Brussels and these complaints uh, are logged on this system called IMI and the uh, and there is a mechanism under which the European Data Protection Board can decide who is the appropriate regulator or regulators if there's uh, some contention and regulators that aren't the lead regulator can, if you like, register as observers or participants in that case. So a somewhat complicated system, and I've oversimplified. But I think many of us always have had doubts as to whether one-stop shop was going to work uh, that uh, smoothly in practice. It's all very well to say, theoretically, this will happen. But data protection it is an emotive concept in some jurisdictions. And obviously, some authorities will not want to pass up the opportunity of hearing a complaint, particularly when it's somewhat political. And as a result, the number of IMI cases is relatively low. So to give you a rough idea, around about 100,000 complaints were made across the EU as at sort of January, February stage. And of those, around about 600 uh, had been dealt with under the IMI system. So they're these cross-border complaints. And we know that some of these IMI cases are quite big, so involving Uber, where the lead is the Netherlands, involving Google and Facebook, where the lead is Ireland. Um, and we know that a high number of these IMI complaints are actually being dealt with by Ireland, uh, about 37%. Uh, Germany's next uh, with about 13% and Luxembourg about 11%. That's likely to be people like eBay and PayPal who, who uh, use, and Amazon is another who, who, who use Luxembourg as their lead DPA. Now, the uh, we've said, of course, since before GDPR came in, uh, that what stop shop isn't, you know, a guaranteed thing. And that was illustrated in January by the Google fine, which was bought by the French authorities. And you might remember we talked about the same sort of things that are being mentioned in this article back in uh, late January, I think, Tom, on this podcast. And effectively, in the Google case, Google was saying, you, the French authority, uh, Keneal, they're called, can't touch us because Ireland is our lead DPA. And uh, Keneal said, no, that's not the case. We feel that we have got jurisdiction to deal with you um, because the way in which you've structured your Irish operations means that you're not taking decisions there, et cetera. So you don't come within one-stop shop. And we, France, can therefore discipline you because we're disciplining the, the US end, if you like, rather than the Irish end. And you might recall that as a result, Google changed their corporate structure almost overnight. So the day after the fine, they announced a different structure. 
Um, we have, however, had cases, as I said, that have gone under IMI, and some of the large complainants, like the Max Schrems Pressure Group, uh, um, NOYB, have tried to match their complaints with who they think the lead DPA is likely to be. So they've done a work, piece of work before they've complained of identifying who they believe the appropriate regulator is. Uh, and I think these type of jurisdictional arguments are likely to run and run. We're monitoring a case in Belgium, for example, where um, the uh, Belgium courts have been looking into arguments around the operation of one-stop shop concerning, in this case, Facebook. And it's an interesting case in that Facebook have Facebook Ireland have lawyers in the case and Facebook Belgium have lawyers in the same case. And Facebook Ireland is effectively saying that the uh, matter should be uh, before the Irish authorities because Facebook Ireland is the biggest Facebook entity in Europe and it has control over the data. And Facebook Belgium's lawyers are saying that the Belgium subsidiary isn't liable at all. We don't have access to the data and we don't know how to process it. Uh, this is, uh, uh, and, and they also say that organizations like uh, NOYB have been involved in looking at Facebook where the Belgium authority had sent the complaint that NOYB made to Ireland to become the lead authority. Now, this case came, my understanding, before the uh, Brussels Tribunal of First Instance in uh, February. Uh, it's now going through the Belgium court system. And my understanding is that we will have some sort of word from the court on April 24th. Now, this could be a judgment deciding the issue. It could be a referral of the whole one-stop shop issue to the uh, EU Court of Justice in Luxembourg. And I think on an earlier podcast, I think uh, Andre, my colleague, predicted that that's where the Google arguments might end up as well. So, in summary, I think it's a complex part of GDPR, and we will probably need a ruling from Luxembourg, which will tell us how one-stop shop is going to be applied. Don't expect hard and fast rules. I think we'll have more complexity. So, what does this mean to any organization that's trying to deal with its own data protection compliance at the moment? Well, I think there's a number of things they should consider. First of all, if you're a US corporation or you're any sort of corporation that's outside the EU, think very carefully about your corporate structure and where you take decisions about data. Because unless you can prove some connection with some EU state, you're likely to be regulated by all of them which is the difficulty Google potentially faces. It's got a 50 million, power, uh, 50 million euro fine from Canil in France. It's got mirror proceedings in other jurisdictions like Sweden. 
So first of all, if you haven't taken proper advice on how you structure your operations within the EU and you're based outside the EU, then you need to do that. Secondly, I think uh, for many organizations, they will be trying to work out who their lead DPA is, making sure that they've registered the data protection officer, making sure that they've done anything else that they need to do in that jurisdiction, and possibly even reaching out to their lead DPA on DPIAs, et cetera, to try and form some sort of relationship. But at the same time, I think they've got to assume that one-stop shop might not apply to all of their operations. So if they have a data breach, for example, they'll need to put in place processes to inform every relevant DPA, even though it might be the case that on the particular fact pattern, they only need to res respond to one. But if you design the processes to be able to deal with many jurisdictions and you end up only having to deal with one, then obviously that's no loss. If you try and assume that one-stop shop applies in every situation and it doesn't, uh, then you've got a lot of engineering and explaining to do. So I suppose in summary, Tom, I think it is very much a live issue. It's not an easy issue to understand. It's possibly another case, and there regrettably are many, when the politicians who put GDPR into place didn't have a sufficient understanding of how regulatory regimes behave, and in particular, how regulators will react to public opinion in their own countries. So is it a flaw of the GDPR system? Probably. Uh, and I still don't think that we'll get lasting resolution because the whole mechanism fails to understand how regulators behave in practice. Well, Jonathan, uh, I'm not sure if I'm uh, more confused, less confused, uh, <laughs> more, uh, more nuanced, less nuanced, uh, more depressed, less depressed, uh, or other uh, after uh, that uh, recitation. Uh, I guess the one thing I did want to ask, it seemed to me that uh, perhaps Facebook was taking the uh, position that they could basically forum shop for the regulator they wanted, and I see at least some of this effort as as pushback from the perception of forum forum shopping by uh, U.S. companies. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, the those that are critics of the one-stop shop system say that it allows people to forum shop, and they also say that you know, Germany is slightly different because there are different regulators within Germany. But if we look at the two top uh, federal jurisdictions, if you like, of Facebook and Luxembourg, they're also, it is argued, uh, perceived as being the mo two of the most business friendly and two of those least likely to act. And there's certainly been criticism in the past of Luxembourg particularly um, encouraging businesses to go there on the basis of its lighter regulatory regime. So I think you're, you, you're right in, in many respects that it's unclear. I think the, you know, the, the cast iron advice we can give people 
is that they need to look through their own structures. They need to prepare for the worst and also need to watch this space. You know, we could have more uh, indication of how courts are thinking as early as April 24th. My sense is that we're about two, two and a half years away from a more definitive resolution from the courts in Luxembourg. Well, Jonathan, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but uh, this has been a fascinating exploration on a, on a frankly, very complex area that uh, I think perhaps your words of watch this space was are as good as, as any for this issue. My pleasure, Tom. Sorry it was complicated. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Life with GDPR. If you have any questions on fishing, you can email Jonathan at jonathan.armstrong at corderycompliance.com. If you have any questions, you can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join Jonathan and I again for another episode of Life with GDPR. Life with GDPR is a presentation of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.